Greetings, and welcome to the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast series. Podcast episodes are available on VHHA.com and on popular podcast hosting apps, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and many others. Podcast episodes also air each Saturday at noon and Sunday at 10 a.m. on 100.5 FM, 92.7 FM, and 820 AM across Central Virginia, 1650 AM in Hampton Roads, and Wednesdays at 1 p.m. on 93.9 FM in Richmond. We're also members of the Virginia Audio Collective, the Public Health Podcast Network, and the Family Podcast Network. Send any questions, comments, or feedback to pcfpodcast at vhha.com. That's pcfpodcast at vhha.com. I'm Will Selden with VHHA, and today we're glad to be joined by Dr. Jim Plews-Ogan, a pediatrician retired from UVA Health for a conversation about his work, as well as a recent ALS diagnosis and more. We'll get to that in just a moment, but first, welcome to the program, Dr. Plews-Ogan. Thanks so much for being here. Yes, it's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Great. Well, I want to start briefly by exploring your career in pediatrics, including your past decade at UVA Children's Hospital. During that time, you co-founded the By Your Side Clinic to provide coordinated care for young patients with complicated medical needs, including, and I saw this in a couple different articles, you all did home visits, which is fantastic. Um, right. And over the years, I imagine that you interacted with countless families and patients. So from a practitioner's perspective, what do you love about pediatric care? And if you don't mind, maybe share with us one memorable patient or family story from your clinical days. Sure. Well, thank you for starting with that because really being a pediatrician was a vocation for me. I, you know, in medical school, wasn't sure what I was going to do. In fact, for much of the time, I thought I was going to be doing adult oncology. But when I did my pediatric rotation, I really fell in love with that type of practice. And much of what I love is the span from, you know, newborns all the way through young adults. I, I, I really always enjoyed the challenge of meeting kids and young adults where they were from a developmental point of view. And the medicine was very interesting to me. Uh, I loved the uh, opportunity to interact with families. And I had the opportunity to begin taking care of kids with significant medical complexity and severe disabilities as my career progressed and entering their lives and understanding the complexity of their lives and the commitment of the families to the care of their of their children and how it really rippled across the family and in terms of the needs and the commitment and the sacrifice was really inspiring to me and I really felt privileged to be able to enter into their lives and, and help in any way I could. That, you know, allowed me to get to know these families really, really well. And that was really satisfying, or I was really grateful for that opportunity in my career. I had a, here in, in Charlottesville, I had a solo practice in pediatrics, general pediatrics for 20 years. And it was a unique, I call it, you know, highly personalized practice. I had you know, one person who did my scheduling and billing, but I did everything else. I did all the shots, the grooming and the heights and weights, and uh, it allowed me a lot more time with my patients. I also routinely made house calls, beginning with seeing all the newborns at home for the first month, and then the lion's share of the sick calls I did as house calls. I just wove them into the day of my schedule and so I got to know the families and where they lived and their pets and their grandparents, and all of that was really terrific. 
And then when Jim Nataro uh, became chair at UVA Pediatrics, he and I met each other, and he offered me the opportunity to replicate my private practice in the academic realm to specifically serve children with medical complexity, because these kids and their families have so many barriers to getting to care, and they need help with coordination of care. They often have five, six different specialists together and many in-home therapies, and they have to interface with the school, and transportation is a struggle, and they make it all happen. They do, and our uh, and our children's hospital does a marvelous job of taking kids, but they need an extra layer of care because of the complexity. And so, by your side was born, and Ina Stevens is still very much involved with that. I think Rebecca Abernathy as well, and it's been going on for you know quite a while now, and people respond to it. So those things were really important to me, and led to academic work around provide higher quality and more coordinated care from a team approach for children with medical complexity. And it was really fulfilling work, really, really fulfilling work. And I retired from all of that in March rather abruptly because I received the diagnosis of ALS in November. And it was going to be difficult to continue practicing in the, in the way that I had uh, with the physical limitations of ALS. And I really needed to move along into my retirement and also many of the things that have transpired since then in these few short months, which is, I guess, what we're going to be talking about. Do you wish you could focus on practicing medicine without all the distractions? Covaris is here to help. As a leader in medical professional liability insurance with more than 45 years experience, Covaris provides insurance protection with data-driven predictive modeling to help you mitigate the risk of claims. By combining insurance protection with risk analytics services, you can reduce distractions and focus on improving clinical, operational, and financial outcomes. Covaris is reinventing what you should expect from your medical professional liability provider. Find out all Covaris can offer you at Covaris.com. That's C-O-V-E-R-Y-S.com. Insurance products issued by Medical Professional Mutual Insurance Company and its insurance subsidiaries, Boston, Massachusetts. Well, I have to say, I mean, you talk about the connection you were able to make with your patients across the years. And I would imagine that everyone has a similar sort of story with their pediatrician. I mean, it they really are part of your life. And especially if you're making house calls and getting to know family and like you said, grandparents and pets and all that sort of stuff. I can imagine that was great for you, but also great for the families. And they must've felt a real sense of connection to you, which I'm sure made that whole process much easier for everybody. So that's, that's really great to hear. Yeah. You know, all the people that entered my practice, my private practice did trend, but all the people that started with me, meaning when they, you know, started having babies and came to me. They started with, I, uh, they all came for a prenatal visit. So we had an hour together in my office, you know, learning, getting to know each other and understanding, you know, what our expectations and hopes were for. So I got to know them before the baby was born. And then I spent, you know, that month in their home, helping them adjust and learn how to care for a baby, a lot of breastfeeding support, et cetera. And then, yeah, like you said, I got, I followed them through. So Many, many of the kids, you know, that I started with were in their, in college when, when I retired. And to have that span in their life and in their family in that intimate way was 
was, as I said earlier, quite fulfilling. And we did form quite a bond. And, you know, while I was taking care of them, I didn't, I, I kept, you know, good boundaries because you need to do that as a clinician. And then as I retired and I was, I spent six weeks saying goodbye to patients because it was, it was a very personalized practice and there was a lot of grief. Um, and because of the diagnosis and because of the, the fact that I was retiring. Um, but people were also so generous with their, their support and care. And it was really obvious that we loved each other and that my practice was really centered in a sense of connection and listening and the therapeutic use of self. And in that, you know, there's a, there transpired love between us. And yeah, there was a, there was quite a bond. And I think that continues uh, now. I still think of them quite fondly and uh, remember, you know, all the things that we went through together. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, thanks so much for sharing that. We've touched sure. on this a little bit. You were diagnosed with ALS in the past year. Just to provide a little bit of background for those who may not be super familiar, it's a neurological condition, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease, which is a disorder of the nervous system that causes cells to break down, affecting muscle function movement, speech, and more. It impacts about 30,000 people in the U.S., and there are 5,000 new cases diagnosed each year. You've been really candid and forthcoming about your diagnosis, sharing personal updates and doses of inspiration, if you'll pardon the pun, on your offering (laughs) kindness blog about your experiences, your ups and downs, and and more. So thinking about that, I want to ask you a really simple question, but given the circumstances, one that almost certainly has a lot of nuance and complexity about it, Generally okay. speaking, how are you doing these days? I mean, how have you navigated? What are you using to, to cope and all that sort of stuff? You know, Will, that is just the greatest question. And people forget to ask that. So, you know, I'm really, I'm moved by that. Thank you so much for that personal question, because it's important to ask people that are going through this, how are you doing? Um Actually, I'm doing fine. I'm surrounded by uh, just a tremendous loving family that my kids are, you know, in their 20s and 30s and they're extremely emotionally mature and they're here, you know, Peggy, my wife, is we've been married 40 some years and our extended family has been wonderful. And, you know, I have a, a really great circle of friends. The UVA Center of Excellence, the DART Center for ALS provides incredible multidisciplinary care for ALS. I'm getting great care. I go up to uh, Mass General, the Healy Center uh, for Second Opinions. And, you know, I'm I'm enjoying my retirement. I really am. And uh, the Hummingbird Fund has provided a terrific source of work and purpose for my retirement. So uh, I'm doing fine. And, and once again, thank you so much for asking. Yeah, of course. I I'm totally with you. I think that is important to ask folks in almost any circumstance, but especially given these circumstances. (laughs) Um, Well, I want to share a recent anecdote. We had a a guest on the podcast, a woman named Delaney Liskey, who was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis as a child, which was an experience that inspired her to learn all she could about the condition and ultimately led her to the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine and Science, where she's now a doctoral student and, and biomedical researcher. She also founded the International Society of Patient Research Sciences and is an advocate for more patients to become scientists to bring their voices and experience to the continuum of care. So I share that anecdote because, as you know, the healthcare community focuses 
a lot of attention on positive patient experience. Um, I'm curious to hear what your observations or insights are. Because you have such a wealth of experience as a clinician, how has that sort of influenced your experience as a patient? Right. Well, okay, you know, pluses and minuses, right? Uh, Let's start with some of the minuses and then I'll end with the pluses. (laughs) That's a good idea. Um, Yeah, yeah. You know, I spent 40 years writing prescriptions and sending people off to the pharmacy and talking to them about, you know, referrals to physical therapy and, you know, specialists and all that, right? And now as a patient, I am reawakened to the reality of paying for medicines and understanding how to navigate the system and really having to advocate for myself and having to face daily barriers and challenges to my care. Just trying to sometimes get the medicine I need or pay for it. You know, wild, wild, wild stories I could tell you about how much things cost that I had would have no idea. And then suddenly somebody finding a coupon that allows me to actually afford it. You know, discovering treatments that are available, but then they're not available because of some glitch in the regulatory system, et cetera, which is what we're trying to do with our advocacy with Hummingbird to break some of this stuff down and help people. So there are so many challenges just to navigate the system when you have a complex medical condition where many of the treatments and therapies are interwoven and sometimes experimental. So it's a huge challenge. And I have found as a patient that I have to really like space it out because I get physically and emotionally exhausted trying to manage uh, the day-to-day aspects of, of care, which is very surprising to me. Now, on the positive side, uh, I always focused my care as a clinician on the therapeutic use of self, as I said, you know, engaging with the patient where they were listening carefully, having communication be really a key part of it, working with them, helping to set priorities with them, you know, really being a partner with the patient and family. And I will say that largely, as I've interacted with the folks at UVA, at the Healy Center, at the NIH, I have just met so many talented and caring and dedicated people uh, that are really extending themselves to help the ALS community way above and beyond, you know, the, the, what happens in the, in the exam room. And then likewise, I want to say that when I was working with kids with medical complexity in their families, I, there was a whole network of families that learned from each other and, you know, about how to approach the idiosyncrasies of their disability and their needs for care. And likewise, the community in the ALS community is a fierce and creative and loving and committed group. And so it's been really uh, important to my family and to me to, you know, to be a part of of those communities in the ways that we can. So for advocacy, support, outreach, and once again, why we started the Hummingbird Fund, you know, to join that group of patients and families in a way that could be helpful and supportive and really advance the opportunities for, you know, improved care. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. That is so fascinating to hear your perspective on that. I mean, since you've had such experience on both sides now, it's, it's fascinating to hear. Yeah. Yeah. I want to move forward a little bit. So when someone receives unwelcome medical news, 
a common refrain you sometimes hear is something along the lines of, I'm not going to stop living life, which at its essence is a comment on the resilience of the human spirit, in my opinion. Even in challenging times, you still carry on. Since your diagnosis, you have definitely embodied that from what I've read. (laughs) Part of your personal care routine, you now take dozens of pills daily to manage your symptoms. You practice mindfulness to center yourself each morning to get the day going. You've lobbied Congress for ALS resources and expedited FDA drug approval. You've established this hummingbird fund that we've spoken about a little bit to promote awareness and support, which to put lightly sounds like a pretty action-packed retirement. So if you wouldn't mind, tell us a little bit more about the Hummingbird Fund, its advocacy, its efforts, and just sort of like a 30,000-foot view. And then if you want to drill down on any specific area of it that you think is particularly important, feel free to do that as well. Okay, great. Thanks, Will, for that opportunity. So the Hummingbird Fund is a family-directed fund that is housed at the, the Charlottesville Area Community Foundation. So we are sort of a foundation within a foundation. They take care of all of the legal aspects, and we then are able to just focus on our mission. And our mission really stands on three pillars, that that of access, innovation, and advocacy. So we want to close gaps in care for people living with ALS. We want to accelerate technological innovation to assist people living with ALS. And we really want to advance advocacy and legislation for ALS research and treatment. And so this means really identifying a lot of the gaps in care that exist for patients that have ALS and their families, like respite care, like transportation, like, you know, horrendous co-pays, like, you know, uh, access to coordination of care and excellent uh, multidisciplinary care. The technology is really a part of living with disability, and they're, they're, it often needs to be like modified to meet the individual's needs or new innovations need to be, um, you know, coming along to help people uh, manage their lives or live an inclusive, you know, and participatory life with disability. And then the last is, you know, advancing advocacy and legislation because without changing legislative processes and increasing funding and decreasing barriers through the FDA, you know, new treatments are not going to come along. Uh, ALS is unfortunately uniformly fatal. When you receive a diagnosis, the average life expectancy is two to five years. A person is diagnosed with ALS about every 90 minutes, but also someone passes away every 90 minutes. So people think of it as a rare disease, but in fact, it's not a rare disease. It's just, it's one that's around that people then get consumed with living with disability or pass away. And so they're out of sight kind of um, with the disease. And it's hard to, you know, ha- it's hard to really see what's going on and, you know, have effort moving forward. But the good news is that ALS is not really an incurable disease. It's an underfunded disease and it's under-resourced. So if we can create legislative action to help, you know, get the funding and apply the funding, um, like is happening through the Act for ALS, which President Biden signed in December, dedicating $120 million of new research money toward uh, early access and trials. And we can get the medications through the FDA regulatory process, which has proven to be an incredible hurdle because of regulatory restrictions in the neuroscience arm of the FDA. Then we can get them into the bodies and people can start to see how they work. And, you know, just like HIV, 
in the early days, we had a few things that we could use, and then as things came along and moved along quickly through this process and into people's bodies, you stack the treatments, you create potions that you know are composites of many drugs, and pretty soon people are living longer. And now HIV, of course, people live pretty normal lives, you know, taking sometimes just one pill a day. The same thing ha- has happened with many, many cancers. The same thing has happened with pediatric oncology, you know, moving from 20% survivability a couple of decades ago to now generally 80% survivability for all pediatric cancers. And it's just getting the science, move it forward into people's bodies. And this is what we're hoping to promote with the Hummingbird Fund and joining with partners, many organizations nationwide. And currently what we're doing is a regulatory push with the FDA. The FDA is going to be reviewing AMX 0035 in September, and they're they're receiving public comments now. So the Hummingbird Fund is mobilizing its champions to submit public testimony in support of AMX 35, which has been shown to be safe and effective and extend the life of, of people living with ALS. And, you know, already we've had greater than 50 people from our network submit testimony. I'm sure there'll be more, too. So that as a retirement, you ask, Will, I mean, to think that, you know, that I'm now able to bring forward all the leadership capabilities and my clinical ideas and or, you know, experience and my experience working with families in similar situations and now mobilize it toward ALS and potentially do some good along with my friends and family um, in this, you know, journey with ALS, that's uh, that's going to be a very fulfilling retirement. Yeah, I can imagine. Having read about your story a little bit before this conversation, I was I was blown away. And, and to hear you talk about it, all that you've accomplished in such a short amount of time is just remarkable. So thanks so much for sharing that. If people are interested in learning more about the Hummingbird Fund, they can contact you directly. Um, I, th- I think I'm correct in, in saying at thehummingbirdfund at gmail.com. The Hummingbird Fund. The, the Hummingbird, Hummingbird Fund. Fund. Gotcha. The at, Hummingbird yeah, Fund our, at gmail.com. At, yeah. And, you know, for donations, for more interest, if they want to make public testimony, any of those things, they can reach us there. <clears throat> our website, hummingbirdfundva.com, <clears throat> is under construction and will be up relatively soon. Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing that. Before we conclude, it's tradition on this podcast to ask our guests a few more lighthearted questions just to close out this, okay. the show. So to keep oh, things good. interesting, we've developed a list of 10 mystery questions. So when you're ready, oh. uh, if you would okay. pick two numbers between 1 and 10, I'll ask you those corresponding questions. Two and three. Alrighty. First question. If you were stranded on a deserted island, what one book, one album, and one movie would you take with you to keep yourself company? We'll spot you a copy of the religious text of your choice. So other than that, what are your three entertainment survival kit picks? Okay, so you're saying I can't take the Bible with me, right? Because you already... <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll give you that one. We'll give you that one. <laughs> okay. I think, gosh, this is a hard one for the books. You know, whatever I say is going to reveal some quirky side of me, right? Because <laughs> I guess that's... It'll that's add some book. flavor, some color to it. That's yeah, great. it will definitely add some flavor. And I only get to have one, so... You know, that's that's kind of tricky. So you know what I could do? I could I could mix it up. So I'm a big fan of the mystics and reading a lot of the mystics right now. So I think probably what I would my book would be the the translation by Mirabar Star of Julian Norwich's the showings. 
And then this is this is really kind of embarrassing, but uh, the movie I would take would be Notting Hill. <laughs> the fame thing isn't really real, you know. Don't forget, I'm also just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love her. And then, see, the music I would take would definitely be one of the live albums of Nina Simone. Oh, cinnamon, where are you gonna run to? Cinnamon. Perfect. Love it. And I will say, you know, whenever we ask this question, everyone is embarrassed yeah. by their picks. There is no yeah. such thing as an embarrassing option. There is no such <laughs> thing. So I just want to put that out there. They're all great all choices. Right, well, yeah, yeah. Uh, and okay, then the good. next question, final question. Yeah. This is a big one as well, kind of tricky. What is Uh-oh. the best piece of advice you've ever received and why does it stick with you? The best piece of advice I've received came very recently. And that is when I uh, was kind of overwhelmed with this new diagnosis and, as we say, uh, attempting to integrate it into my sense of self and not quite sure how to respond to everybody as they were, were responding to me and all of that. And I was a little bit at sea with all of that. And someone close to me said, Jim, just be yourself. And I think that was, you know, I think that's universally a really a powerful piece of advice for all of us, that if we can just be real, keep it real, and be ourselves, things will be fine. <laughs> I like that. That's great. Thanks so much for sharing that. Sure. That's going to bring us to the close of another episode of the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast. If you liked what you heard, please make sure to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe so you know when new episodes are released. We want to once again thank our guest, Dr. Jim Pluzogan, for joining us today. So seriously, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity.